I, I sometimes describe it as like being a piece of jigsaw in the wrong box. I didn't quite fit <laughs> in anywhere. It's 16 months since Wellington Central MP Fran Wilde introduced the Homosexual Law Reform Bill, and it's been a passionate, lengthy debate. You're not going to keep them from going along and saying, fuck you, I'm not doing that. You can't have a strategy which, which, which keeps people restrained in these circumstances. This had to be done. I mean, it had to be done. It was, yeah. it was really important. And there was a huge group of people helping out, massive numbers of people. It felt like we were having a, an historical impact, you know. Some of those marches were incredible. They, they were just stunning. What New Zealand saw on the television screens that night was a kind of a mini local version of a Nuremberg rally. Mm. I tell you, we were meeting doubt after about three weeks. We had meetings just about every night of the week. Particularly if you've got politics like mine, you don't have very many victories uh, in life. And this, this felt like, this felt sweet. and welcome back to Blueprints, the podcast about political strategies where we dig into how people built power and make change. This is the first episode of Series 2 and we're sticking again with campaigns. On this day, Friday July the 9th in 1986, the Homosexual Law Reform Bill passed its third reading in New Zealand's Parliament. Sex between men was finally decriminalised, 15 years after the UK and Australia. The campaign mobilised support from lesbian groups, women's rights campaigners, and featured a flourishing of gay men and women coming out and making themselves visible for the first time in their lives. Despite a vicious anti-campaign, which polarised the country to a level not seen since the Springbok tour five years earlier, they came out on top and shifted the mindsets of a majority of New Zealanders. This episode contains references to and clips of severely homophobic language which the people we spoke to felt should still be included. Good, good. I sometimes watch a movie on this laptop, but the sound is very This quiet, is Evan so Wood, who in the early 1980s was a 40-year-old teacher in Blenheim. Anyway, enough of the prattle. You have to stop me prattling on a bit. I always knew I was different some way, and I didn't know how. Um, early in my teaching career, I was boarding with my very much older sister, who had a son, probably only about six years younger than me, and she said, oh, so you'd like him to be more like you, and, I, and very quickly I said, no, no, I wouldn't like anyone to be like me, and I thought, why, why do I do, why have I said that? I, I sometimes describe it as like being a piece of jigsaw in the wrong box. I didn't quite fit <laughs> in anywhere. Yeah. And I, I now am aware that my parents knew that I was gay too, but my, my mother died when I was 14 and oh. I never told my father who died much later, but mm. I'm aware now that he knew as well. Because my mother said to me when I was about 12, you're not ever going to get married you're going to stay home and look after me. And 
But some, sometimes I feel a wee bit guilty because she suicided when I was 14 and I think maybe, sometimes I think maybe the thought of me being queer might not have been easy for her to cope with. But however, I don't know really. Yeah. The woman I married had a child before we were married, so I adopted her. And so I had two biological children. They used to come and visit me every holidays, but the adopted one wasn't allowed to or something. I don't know really. It was simply that we lived in a very heterosexual world. This is the voice of Bill Logan, who was a key figure in the gay task force, which was the group at the heart of the campaign. There was huge discrimination against and, 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 and prejudice against uh, gay men, which permeated the whole of society. Gay men could not expect to be openly gay and have a, have a, a career. That was just not going to happen. You couldn't be a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman or a politician and be openly gay. This was just not going to happen. And lesbianism was unfashionable in a slightly lower key kind of way, but discriminated against through lack of opportunity, through being kept at the bottom of the employment ladder, that kind of thing. So the average wage of a lesbian would have been much lower than the average wage of a gay man, but they was probably less street violence and things like that suffered by lesbians. I was senior teacher of junior classes in the school in Seddon. I got my photo on the front page of the newspaper opposing rugby tours and Seddon's life revolves around the rugby club. So that wasn't a good move, really. If I went to the pub, people would challenge me and, and want to have a punch up or something or other. I went to the shop. The shop wouldn't serve me. In my early teaching career, I'd been really strongly supported by Maori people. Um, I always feel much more accepted by Maori people than Pākehā New Zealanders. So I'm very comfortable in their company. While Bill, whose Twitter handle is at Bolshevik Bill, which gives you a little bit of an idea of his politics, was living in Wellington, having returned from a spell in the US. I, I had a bookshop, partly secondhand, partly left wing and uh, big gay section. It, it was commercially not a good proposition, but it was good fun. And uh, it, it um, became a, a, a bit of a community centre. And I had been teaching politics at the university a bit before then. And things were seemed to be moving rightward for a while. Muldoon was in control. And... My uh, job at the university didn't seem to hold much prospect, and the idea of of a left-wing bookshop seemed very attractive, but I, I, I turned out not to be a very good businessman. Though the gay liberation movement wasn't as big in New Zealand as it was in North America, there was still a vibrant collection of small groups and campaigns and organisations operating semi-covertly. There was a social club in Wellington, for example, the Dorian Society, which had been going on for ages. And it, it set up a, a legal committee for, for law reform, which became the Homosexual Law Reform Society. And that combined mostly gay men and university liberals and church people and so on. Pretty straight, respectable, consenting adults in private, uh, that kind of thing. 
And then there was a radical sort of fringe that was into gay liberation ideas, interested in more radical reforms. And there were pushes for law reform through the late 70s. Uh, and so there was a bit of a, a, a conflict between these two wings of radical activism, of, of gay activism, one more radical than the other. That had faded out at the end of the 70s, really. Homosexual law reform. So um, what we would like to, uh, to see is to get rid completely of any special rules that relate only to relationships between men. The president of the New Zealand Homosexual Law Reform Society, Professor Jim Robb. This week, Insight 84 examines mounting pressure to liberalise laws relating to homosexual acts between men and looks at the current social climate surrounding the issues. As the 1984 general election loomed, Fran Wilde, a young, single mother of three children, was campaigning to retain the Wellington Central seat that she'd won for Labour so unexpectedly three years earlier. And that was probably the gayest electorate in the country and the most liberal politically. And so she had this meeting, a meeting in the, in the gay community centre. We invited lesbians along. And I was lobbied along with all other candidates by the gay community about support for gay law reform. And obviously I said, yes, I would support it. And then they threw in another question, which was, if necessary, would you be prepared to sponsor a bill? And I just said, well, I, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> she thought that she could probably move, a, introduce a, a bill to decriminalise us if she were elected. Well, she, she got elected, and after that, after she got in, we called for another meeting with her and said, no. Remember you said you'd be interested in... <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, let's have a think about what it means. So it was simply just another opportunity to introduce a bill, but there were, was a greater likelihood of success with that bill because of a number of the new members of parliament being historically supportive. Two attempts have been made in the past 10 years by MPs to pass private members' bills. The first attempt was made by Ven Young, while National was in opposition, and the second by Warren Freer, while his party was also in opposition. Neither bills succeeded. The social climate has now changed, and politically, the time is ripe to introduce a bill. Labour swept to a landslide in 1984 as David Longey became the Prime Minister, so the objective conditions had changed. It was very clear that there had been various attempts over the years to change the law, and usually the bill had been presented by an MP who said, here's the bill, but I'm not going to be doing much work for it. They, they, they introduced it, but they didn't really run a campaign for it, mm -hmm. and it clearly needed a campaign. It needed an MP to do it who was in a seat that would be supportive. I mean, I was a young single mother so I was pretty considered pretty marginal in those days <laughs> and myself but not in Wellington Central they were okay. fine with it yeah. and I can probably run a campaign here 
um, without having to watch my back all the time. And <laughs> so all of the stars kind of aligned around okay. my doing it. Yeah. But we needed a campaign. During the second meeting, after Fran had won re-election, they needed to decide what exactly their objective was. To introduce and pass the bill, yes, but what exactly would they propose? The lesbians, feminists, gay men and others debated. And at that meeting, there were two lines. One was that we should be for a change to the human rights legislation and forget about the criminal law against gay men. Uh, and then there were other people who were saying we should worry simply about the criminal law and forget about the human rights in the meantime. The human rights part of the bill and the decriminalisation part of the bill was a source of the key tension between lesbians, women and the gay men. We'll come back to it later because it's really interesting how they maintained their coalition. I, I must confess to sitting in this conversation and listening. And eventually I, I said, I reckon we should go for both. It was a move to try to get the greatest possible uh, support. Uh, and it was a, a, a move that, well, you go for everything and see what you can get. Uh, you get whatever is realistic and that will be better than nothing. And it wasn't so much a strategy talked out as a sort of in-the-moment thing to, to negotiate a, a difficult position that we might have got into otherwise. There's a useful conceptual way to look at the campaign and its objectives, which makes the strategy of it a bit clearer, in that its real objective was to change the minds of New Zealanders, making life more equitable for gay people, and that winning the actual law reform was in some ways a symbolic thing around which to force that debate that would, they thought, lead to more acceptance of gay people. I, I think it would be an exaggeration to say that we were very, very conscious all along that the law wasn't as important as public opinion. But we also knew that public opinion was what we were up against more than anything else on a day-to-day -day level. Uh, many of the people who were core to the law reform uh, movement in Wellington were involved in the gay switchboard, which was a, an advice group, a telephone counselling, a peer counselling and support organisation. So we had a lot of contact with the actual real life problems of a broad range of, of gay men in particular. You know... There, there were quite often people who were traumatised by brushes with the law, but far more important were all sorts of difficulties with families at work, with ordinary homophobia on a day-to-day a, a -day basis, bullying at school, many, many different kinds of non-legal problems that were associated with, with being gay. There was a, obviously a, a two-way relationship between this background homophobia that permeated the whole of society uh, and, and the law. The law was supported by that homophobia and supported that homophobia. Uh, and if we could break one or the other, it, it would have an impact on the opposite. On September the 1st, 1984, just a few weeks after the election, and with Fran confirmed to introduce the bill, the Gay Task Force was formed and Bill became its general coordinator in Wellington. Uh, Wellington 
Gay Task Force was really great because they had a lot of people who had been active in politics or in you know in government and there's some good bureaucrats there. There were librarians. There were people who knew mm. about systems and processes and things. I see strategy as kind of the main parameters of where you're going, the general outline of 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 what you're going to do, and and tactics perhaps as the the finer detail. And the tactics for homosexual law reform were and, and the strategy actually a whole lot was determined very much by things outside our control, as I suppose strategy usually is. Uh, clearly, we had to get as many people together behind the reform we wanted as we possibly could. It was a matter of building a broad block of tying as many different people together from as many different points of view. A lot of the MPs did support the bill personally, and they knew it had to happen. They knew that this law change was absolutely imperative for New Zealand, but they were terrified of the electoral backlash. So they needed to feel comfortable voting for it. So the campaign was actually a public education campaign. Mm. So it wasn't just lobbying MPs, Mm -hmm. it was actually getting their constituents to lobby them and to change their minds. There's a whole lot of different people from political liberals, a lot of church people were supportive, trade unions, uh, all sorts of political groups, many of whom, well, their their support wasn't very solid, but many of them looked as if they they might be able to be won. Uh, And uh, it was those not so solid, not so firm supporters who were the most important targets in many ways. Because if we could if we could win some of that middle ground over, we had a, a pretty good chance. This is the same kind of thinking that Liam talked about during the teacher strike in episode six, and it's backed up by research from projects like the race class narrative, which split the population into thirds: the base, who will support you no matter what; the persuadables, who well can be persuaded; and then the opposition who will never change their mind, but aren't usually more than a third of people, but who we seem to spend the most time focusing on. And so this campaign assumed that the persuadables in New Zealand, once they were given sufficient information, once they understood gay people and their lives, they assumed that they would support them. We had an idea from the gay liberation movement history of the 1970s, that our best strategy was visibility, that we were invisible to most people in New Zealand. Most people in New Zealand thought they had never met anyone who was gay. It seems extraordinary now, doesn't it? And that it was our job to to introduce ourselves to as many people as we could. And so 1985, 86 was this great coming out process throughout New Zealand that we encouraged. But coming out wasn't a new concept and its importance politically wasn't new. Uh, So it wasn't difficult for us to realize that this would be the most useful and central element to our strategy. 
the 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 question then was how do you help this how do you how do you facilitate this coming out but up until that time i'd never met anyone who was gay i mean this is ridiculous isn't it at 40 years old but i did belong to a men's group a sort of you know new age touchy-feely type men's group none of whom i would have known would were gay at all but there was a seminar held around about levin somewhere and I chose to go, oh, after that weekend, I knew I was gay. I met some gay people there. Someone gave me a blowjob, which was pretty mind-blowing, <laughs> um, apart from anything else. <laughs> it was not a good turn of phrase, but never mind. Um, I shared a flat with two nurses and another teacher, and I told the owner of the house, who was a male nurse, and he said, oh, that's no problem. I've got some gay friends in Christchurch. And so they sent me some books and stuff. That was, at the time, a bit courageous because you let people know you're gay and you diminish your job prospects even. You invite family conflict. Because when I came out, it was like a big black cloud moving away. And, it, and because, as I said before, I, I felt that I was different somehow, but didn't know mm. how. And so once I found out, I mean, I thought, oh, God, at least that that makes sense now. Now I know who I am. It just made so much more sense. Do you, mm. do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just felt very accepted by my friends and family, I think. Mm. And so we came across the idea of simply going to as many schools, as many service clubs, as many meetings as possible, speaking openly as lesbians and gay men. And to have as many feature articles as we could in Sunday newspapers and elsewhere about, about our lives. One of the things we did was simply find appropriate candidates, see if they're willing, see if they're right, talk to them a bit about them and and link them up with a journalist so that they can do a feature on them. Uh, you know, there's, there's a series in the Sunday Times, I think it was, where we had clergymen and army officers and, and people like that, you know, a different person every week, talk about their life and their gayness and how prejudice against them and homophobia had distorted the possibilities of their lives. With the broad strategy fairly clear then, the execution of it was daunting. What tactics they used to do the strategy, how they decided to change the minds of New Zealanders was open for debate. They needed a significant mobilization of resources and people nationwide, and so they set about building a coalition of supporting groups. Central to this were feminists, lesbians, and women's rights campaigners. It really grew out of those two meetings with Fran Wilde. And we invited lesbian groups to come along to those meetings. Well, Linda Evans called a meeting um, of the Lesbian Coalition about a month before this is the Tiggy bill was Instone, introduced. A lesbian who became politically active for the first time during this campaign. This interview was done by Pride NZ a few years ago. 
My thanks to them for allowing me to use it. To gauge lesbian interest in working to support the bill. There were a huge diversity in lesbian reaction to it. Some, some lesbians didn't want to have anything to do with it. Some lesbians felt that it would be what usually seemed to happen was the, the lesbians doing all the work and the gay men getting all the benefit. <laughs> and so, some other other lesbians thought we should be working on, on other issues, not this one at all. And I went along to that meeting primarily because I had been part of that scene where we socialised a lot with, with the gay guys. Uh, I was aware that two dear friends of mine who were gay men had had you know, charges against them. Uh, one of them was convicted. I'm not quite sure whether the other one was, was convicted or not, but he lost his job anyway. And that was devastating for him. He was in the Air Force. And... and he it, it was a source of great pride to him that he was in the Air Force. And so I had watched and, and observed how wrecked those two friends' lives were by this law. And I was determined that I was going to be involved in getting rid of it. Now, if you just look at the gay-lesbian population, you're talking about this immense spectrum of people going from pretty misogynist old men to radical young people uh, to people who weren't very interested in politics but wanted to have a good time to the women's movement and lesbian activists who some some of them had really sophisticated worldviews and political uh, understandings and each part of that potential coalition thought some other parts were irrelevant and we, it didn't matter if we lost them. So uh, it was only a few of us who saw that keeping that all together was actually necessary. I committed myself to being involved and we needed to, to find some lesbians who were prepared to go along to the gay task force meetings to, so that there was a, you know, communication between the two groups and most people didn't want to do that. I wasn't an activist at this stage, I might, I might tell you, that I was used to socialising with the gay guys, it wouldn't bother me, so I volunteered and me and Pauline Simmons and Alison Laurie and Linda Evans and later Jim, Julie Glamusner and Alison Lash and we always made sure at least two of us went to those meetings. We set up the Gay Task Force, which had lesbians in its leadership. And the differences were, Bill, you should be talking more about lesbians in your public statements. You talk about gays and gay men all the time, and you don't talk enough about lesbians. That sort of conversation. And it was quite right. The Gay Task Force wasn't quite so easy to work in because it was such a diverse group of people. And, see, a lot of the older, very conservative gay men, all they wanted was the decriminalisation. They didn't want to know about the politics of it and they didn't care what age it was. And they thought the lesbians came along to the meetings and had far too much to say. <laughs> there was one time where a lot of people wanted a demonstration to support the bill outside Parliament, fairly near the end. And 
the more conservative elements of gay men didn't want a demonstration. And so there was this, this split, which was kind of underlying a lot of the time. And it was necessary to kind of explain, hey, you've got to decide how much you don't want a demonstration because what would be worse than a demonstration? You know, if our friends in this room, these lesbians, say this is a bad deal, they're just wanting something for themselves, they've given up on on human rights, um, they're, they're not really for the rights of women at all, they're just wanting to keep themselves out of jail, then we've got a problem. Because if the lesbians say that to the women in the Labour Party, they won't say don't vote for it, but their energy was going to go right down. And we need them to keep pressure on the parliamentary Labour Party. Just as you rich old men are absolutely necessary, your money is necessary for this campaign. And the lesbians better remember that. So you've got to remember that the energy of the women is also necessary. We've got to live together. So that, that was the strategic difficulty that we, we had at keeping the, this, this broad thing to, uh, going in the same direction. This whole thing started for us as a campaign in our interests. These next two clips are from a meeting on July the 11th, 1985. The first one is Bill, and the second a campaigner called Suzanne Ward, both imploring their audience to build a broader coalition as possible. A pivotal issue in New Zealand politics. It's a, this has become a fight to preserve a certain openness in society. And so it's for that reason that the gay communities and the lesbian community have got to look beyond our own boundaries for support in the community more widely, for support among other people who stand for decency, openness, liberality, and freedom. I think the one thing that I would like to comment, and it probably is somewhat hypocritical of me, because in many ways I have, as a lesbian, not done everything I can do or could have done in pursuit of passing the bill, is that I think we have failed as a group, as a, and I'm now talking to lesbians and gay men, I think we have really failed so far to mobilise all the straight friends we have. And among us we know many, 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 many thousands. For gay Māori who joined the campaign, besides attending the marches and handing out leaflets like everybody else, much of their focus was on engaging whānau in conversation. But having a big national campaign going on was an excellent opportunity for active groups to raise the issue at home. Elizabeth Kerikeri, who's now a Green MP, has said that they focused on homosexual law reform as a cultural issue and the idea of putting whānau first, that the first job of whānau was to look after its children and accept them no matter what. The churches who were against reform did influence many people, but young Māori, through the increasing consciousness developed by the Black Women's Movement and Nā Tamatoa, were engaged in conversations on the par and with whānau. 
and they brought their critiques to homosexual law reform campaign itself. We were challenged during the campaign about the treaty, that we should be doing something about the treaty. And so I said at the time, well, actually, I can't do that. And this, this, you know, this is overwhelming. But, you know, leading up to 1990, got involved in groups of lesbians that were opposing, celebrating a treaty that had not been, you know, fulfilled. And we went up to Waitangi. Here's a clip of Michelle Tui from partway through the campaign. The laws of this land were written by Pākehā people, enforced by Pākehā institutions, expecting all and sundry to abide, which in effect serve no purpose to Māori them. Culturally, our Māori identity and our lesbianism flow together. It is an ongoing task to establish our role within the whānau, the family and the wider Māori and Pacific Island community. In every tribe, there are different ways of seeing lesbianism and homosexuality. We are sick of being the token speakers in our own country. The homosexual law reform campaign has mobilised white gays from the security of their white privilege to canvas for a basic human right, to fight for your own self-determination. What support has there been for Māori self-determination from you? The bill acknowledges our sexuality, but there is other legislation that has raped us of our rights, all passed by Parliament. In white, in white, straight, gay communities, the liberal attitudes to our Māori and Pacific Island status is the same. You feel guilt, we get no action. On the 8th of March, 1985, Fran finally introduced the bill. A bill stands in the name of Fran Wild. Mr Speaker, I move that leave be given to introduce the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. Mr Speaker, in brief, the bill is designed to eliminate legal sanctions on consenting homosexual activity between adults, to remove the legal sanctions on anal intercourse between consenting adults, to strengthen protection for boys under 16 along the lines of protection already provided for girls, and to outlaw discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. Private members' bills were always introduced they were given a first reading, and then they were sent off to a select committee where they basically died. Okay. So everybody said, good on your Fran, we'll introduce it, but of course it'll never get through, yeah. and good on you for trying. So, okay, I said, thank you very much, we just want your vote now. But on the day it was introduced, we knew there were 19 MPs who would have voted for it had it been the third reading that day the final reading. So we clearly did not have anything like a majority. And obviously we did a list, which MPs are not even worth bothering about because we know they're going to oppose it, which are the 19 that would vote for it now. And, and they were kind of enlisted as much as we could in the campaign. And then there was that middle group mm -hmm. who most of whom were probably sympathetic to it, but were concerned about electoral repercussions so they were the ones we targeted so we we had to get things going in their electorates so we had to find we had a file on every mp that we were targeting they must, must have known this <laughs> <laughs> it's not a secret and we found out who were the opinion leaders in their electorates who did they listen to as far as we knew it's if amazing. we could get the local doctor or 
some of the religious leaders or local leaders of some kind um, supportive, then we would try and enlist them to both speak publicly and lobby the MP. So we would try and get articles published in local media and there were a lot more local newspapers then than there are now. So we had people writing letters to the editor, we had uh, op-ed pieces developed. It was a huge campaign of basically disseminating material. I met Fran, she told me about the bill and how much work it was and how... This is Ruth Dyson, who went on to become a Labour MP in Christchurch, but at the time helped look after Fran's kids at home and volunteered on the campaign. I mean, some people would never change. There are people who are, you know, Norman Jones would never change his mind on stuff. Mm. But he still should be lobbied. He still oh, should really? know that, that his views are not the views of his constituents. We knew we'd never get them. But we didn't want them coming into the house and saying, nobody's ever contacted me about it. But there were a lot of people that were undecided. Mm. And you just keep going through the arguments. So it wasn't always appropriate to send Fran Wilde down from mm. Wellington. But I did address big meetings... Mm. And sometimes there was both sides on the platform. One of them, I remember in West Auckland, where one of the speakers said, oh, imagine if this bill goes through, your child will be end up being taught by a lesbian or a gay man. And a woman came up afterwards and said, oh, I actually teach this child and I'm a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> so people didn't even know who was lesbian, who was gay. One of my jobs was to help set up organisations to support the bill around the country so that every electorate had a group of people that were strongly supporting the bill so that we could lobby. So we had this amazing network all around the country of some small groups, some bigger groups. You know, there was always like a a master plan of jobs to do. Mm -hmm. So it was just engaging them with that and helping where they didn't know what to do, teaching them how to do it or just make sure they got through the list. It was really telling people what was going on in Wellington. Some of the young gay men who'd been part of the National Gay Rights Coalition formed a group in Wellington called Campaign for Homosexual Equality. And that was Gavin Young and Douglas Jenkin and a whole lot of Neils. And... (laughs) (laughs) They were fabulous, and they were very aware of sexism. And actually, that was one of the best groups to work with. I, I remember Gavin Young, when in the, the following October, when it was Linda's birthday, he baked a cake for Linda for her birthday and brought it along to the meeting. I mean, you know, they were just darling guys. They were fabulous. And we supplied them with material and arguments, etc., etc., and they were really brave because there might just be a few guys and some women maybe and, you know, gay men in particular were pretty brave if you're in a small hamlet or a small town or, and you come out and say people should support this bill, then you, you're a walking target, really. I thought something has to be done. I mean, someone has to say something and I, even though I didn't want to wave a flag down the street or anything, I decided I was going to write a letter, but I thought if I stay home, the phone's going to melt off the wall or something. So I wrote the letter, sent it in, and decided to go and walk Mount Fishtail, which is 
a rugged mountain, quite a steep mountain over in the Richmond Range. And I went by myself and walked up there and stayed in the hut at the top overnight and then walked up to the top of the mountain and then the clouds came down and I couldn't see my way around at all. It was like a whiteout, you know, you couldn't see direction yeah. or anything at all. And I thought, oh shit, this is a bit tricky. I don't know which way I should go down. And I thought, well, if I do get down safely, then I know I have to do something more. So <laughs> I used it, fishtail because of the, the shape of the mountain. It's got a double, double peak. And so I used my echo sounder and called out and I could hear the echo from the other peak. And I knew that was wow. the way down. And then I got down all right. And then so I came back and decided I was going to be a little more active and let people know that I was a gay man too, mainly, yeah. I was aware that the, the, a group of women supporting the Labour Party and supporting the bill were mm -hmm. active in the community, and so I sort of linked up with them. And when I thought there would be gay people here, I set up a contact phone number and post office mm -hmm. box thing and had some contacts and support for married gay men. And so my office in Parliament became quite a hub of activity. Because it was a bill I was doing, it was a parliamentary bill, I had the resources. I mean, I could do all the photocopying I wanted to mm. because it was a bit of legislation. Mm. So huge resource there, mail out, everything. Mm. I tell you, we were meeting out after about three weeks. We had meetings just about every night of the week, sometimes two or three. The, the next thing, the hug the heterosexuals unafraid of gays. But the, the trouble was that they were putting out a lot of stuff that, that we didn't really uh, uh, always quite agree with. <laughs> and we thought it would be good if, if we had an umbrella that, that brought them in, you know, with, so that everybody sort of had an understanding of, of the political implications of all this. And so we set up what was called the Coalition in Support of the Bill. Now, that was a, a gay task force initiative, and Bill Logan and I were, for the inaugural meeting of that, we were the two sort of the lesbian and the gay man to, to, get, to, to get that off the ground. And so, so now we had the Lesbian Coalition, we had Shay, campaign for homophile equality. We had the gay task force. We had to go to all these meetings to see what was happening. And and we we were a force to be reckoned with actually. And we had there was a drag queen called Leone who who wore Lyle stockings. We thought it was too wrinkly Lyle stockings. And Leone was worked in public service doing filing and and did a card indexing system with all our contacts on it. And it was the, the best contact list in the country. We had a weekly organising meeting and there were always plenty of people at that. And th those meetings were varied in size a lot. Sometimes they were quite small. But if there was something important coming up, they would grow. I don't think there was ever a time when when they were insufficient to the tasks. And you have to build build a meeting, obviously. You, know, you advertise it in the ways which were 
possible at the time. For a long time, we had weekly Sunday letter writing meetings, and we would get 50 or 60 people together to write letters to members of parliament and, and so on. When we set up the coalition in support of the bill, first of all we had the, the rally at the Trades Hall, that was the, the inaugural launch, and then we suddenly discovered we were overspent, we'd run out of money. So we did this big appeal and we sent this appeal everywhere and we got all this money. In the end, we never spent all the money, we had so much money we never spent all, we gave it to the AIDS Foundation, but we never had to worry about money again in that coalition. On the 21st of March, just a couple of weeks after the bill was introduced, a counter-petition denouncing the law reform was launched. Headed by national MPs Norman Jones of Invercargill and Peter Tate of Napier. The politically experienced members of the campaign knew that some polarisation would occur, but they didn't intend for it to become as severe as it did. I don't think that we had any intention of polarising. I think Inevitably, it was going to be polarising. Uh, clearly, the opponents of homosexual law reform wanted it to be polarised. And clearly, many of our people could not prevent themselves from getting dragged into that polarisation. And we learnt that empirically fairly early on. It was like wave after wave hitting the beach. <laughs> And we just thought, oh, okay. And so we were not probably as prepared. But I don't think you can ever be prepared. We knew we couldn't compete with the, the, the petition. They had far too much organisation and, and a lot more money than we, we did. This was obviously the opposition's attempt to gather grassroots support for their view. So uh, we had to just play it step by step and it dragged on and on. I, I guess we were quite tired by the end of it. And the narratives and talking points that came from the anti-campaign were shocking. And as I said in the introduction, some of the language you'll hear in the next section contains extreme homophobia and bigotry. So mm. the biggest myth was that gay men will prey on children. That was huge. That was that was what was put about. People genuinely believed that. Yeah, I think New Zealanders really believed that at the time. So we had the opposition running around saying this is the end of Western civilization, and the sky will fall in and, you know, people will be fornicating in the streets and all your children will be in danger. You, you know, you hmm. there will be gay men teaching your children and think what that means. They'll have access to all these, you know, little boys... It was very scurrilous. Another import to New Zealand was Australian Mrs Jackie Butler, Queensland coordinator of Women Who Want to Be Women. What is your members' opinion of the homosexual law reform bill? Oh, they're completely opposed to it. For what reason? Well, it's against the law of nature. And if the homosexuals just perfected the version with themselves, they would die out in one generation. So I did a lot of work around the country. We Radio talk back, which I loathe anyway. <laughs> I had to do radio talk back. <laughs> and sometimes they'd have me on with one of the opposition. And I remember sitting in a studio with Norm Jones, mm. right, sharing a microphone really close. And he was just spewing this filth. 
and it was pretty hard to listen to. And, and somebody rang and said, what if your son was gay? And he said, oh, I think his answer was, I'll put him in a mental asylum. And I, I was just, wow. it was so terrible. It was one of the key people against the homosexual law abort. It was a guy called Flynn, I think. Uh, and and he he was for the stoning of gay people to death. Yeah, I felt pretty shit, really. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't wander around waving a flag or anything. A lot of the funding and ideas that were driving the reaction of the anti-campaign came from the fundamentalist Christian movement in the USA. So I actually at one stage flew over to New York to talk with the political action group there that had been set up to combat this in the US because they had gathered an immense resources and strategies and that was really useful just to see what they were doing and what were the arguments. Were they just like, they've done all this before? They knew all the arguments. They said, this is what they're going to say. Here's some good arguments against it. And then they'll say this, and they were absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> everything they wow. told us actually came to bear here. So that was helpful. One of the most controversial groups to support the anti-campaign was the Salvation Army, who went on to an issue apology for doing so in 2006. Oh, we, we went and visited the, the Salvation Army. One, two, three, four. The glass doors opened at the front of the Citadel and several army men came out. One pushed the press photographer's camera into his face while another tried to keep him out of the way. So not only are Salvation Army's peddling petitions of hate, but they're now assaulting, assaulting reporters. My God, will anyone be safe? We took Professor Robb, Professor of Sociology and President of the Homosexual Law Reform Society, who had given training units to Salvation Army social workers and so on. It had a long, you know, two or three hours, I think, talking to them, trying to talk them out of this. Because we, we thought it was, a, it was a realistic possibility that we might not win them over, but we might give them sufficient pause to stop putting their organisation behind the petition. I don't know if it was the, the result of that, but the Salvation Army, although it kept a united front publicly, was deeply split by the issue. So no, we, we, we tried to, wherever we could, kind of, you know, engage with people who were opposed to us, simply on the grounds that you can possibly neutralise some. And I think we did. Which I got pissed off with the Presbyterian Church who weren't supportive at all. <laughs> so I just didn't bother with them. If they, if they can't cope with me, I can't cope with them either. The campaign decided to tackle head-on 
each and every obscene and hurtful talking point that the anti-campaign brought up. So we had to get all of the data, which was there, showing that actually most uh, child molestation is overwhelmingly conducted by heterosexual men and overwhelmingly by men in the family of the child. So it's the father or the uncle or somebody associated with the child generally. That was a really, really big issue that we had to say to New Zealanders, your kids will be safe. This legalising homosexuality is not going to endanger your children. We were trying to oppose that through the use of fact and reason. In September of 1985, the Coalition of Concerned Citizens, as the anti-campaign came to be called, released a pamphlet citing all of their arguments against reform. Within two weeks, the Gay Task Force had responded with a 59-page pamphlet of their own, It was called The Rebuttal of a Handbook of Homophobia, a response to the Coalition of Concerned Citizens, the Social Effects of Homosexuality in New Zealand. It was a point-by-point rebuttal of the opposing argument. It's clear that the pamphlet we were answering, it was them talking to opinion leaders, to journalists, to anyone who would listen. And it was good from their perspective to get such a thing out. But if we didn't have an answer to it, it it would have a weight which we didn't want it to have. And so we pulled out everything to, we divided the thing up into little bits and gave everyone an assignment. And I think we we produced an answer extremely quickly. And not a bad answer, if I say so myself. It was much easier for us to have material put through the mainstream media, which was mainly print and radio, Mm. than it would have been now to manage a campaign like this through Mm. social media, which is just so all-encompassing and huge and pervasive. It would have been much harder. As mentioned near the start, the Homosexual Law Reform Society had tried and failed to change the law a couple of times, but they did lay a platform key to their efforts were global scientific and academic reports into homosexuality. The Kinsey report written in the US showed that around 37% of white men had had a homosexual experience and it popularised the idea that sexuality existed on a spectrum rather than as a binary. While in the UK in 1957 the Wolfenden report suggested decriminalising sex between two men when done in private. It was a response to a series of high-profile British men people like computer scientist Alan Turing, who had been convicted for homosexual offences. All this to say that though previous efforts had failed, by 1985 they were utilising the work done before them because now the environment had changed. But the key part of their strategy, and something which has immense relevance to us today, is that facts alone don't change people's minds. And realising that that person who they worked with or loved or knew very well was in fact because of their behaviour criminal hmm. and could be imprisoned basically and that that I think was a shock for many New Zealanders to realise that that maybe they had the wrong idea of what a gay man was hmm. and people did change their minds then oh they did absolutely they did yeah yeah It felt like we were having a, an historical impact, you know. The enthusiasm at a demonstration or at a conference or at a dance, there was a, a great sense of, of hope 
and joy in, in, the, in the whole climate of things. There was also fear that we would miss out, that we'd, we'd, we'd bugger it up. It wasn't sure that we would win by any manner of means. Uh, and there was a sense that if we didn't, it would be a disaster. It wouldn't just be maintaining the status quo. These really nasty fundamentalists and the street violence, which was increased and nasty, would be represented politically as well. It was very clear that this wasn't just about gay men. We'd made some progress with a bunch of women's issues mm -hmm. and it was very clear that the people who were opposing the bill, in many cases actually, the most vociferous ones, would also oppose all these other issues. So there was this fear that went along with the hope and the joy and the celebration. But, you know, it did seem to be a very good shot at it and, and we never lost uh, a great deal of hope. With your identity under threat and toxic accusations and lies about your nature and lifestyle in newspapers, on the radio and on television, how the hell do you try and respond in a way that advances your strategy? Look, if someone is going to hire the town hall, have a public meeting with the idea of putting you in prison and keeping you there, you're not going to keep them from going along and saying, fuck you, I'm not doing that, I'm not going to get out of our way. Unfortunately, her talk was slightly disrupted when the so-called chairman refused to allow questions from the audience, which was mainly comprised of women from Dull, the Drudges Unafraid of Ladies League. Half of the audience, including an Evening Post reporter, were thrown out of the meeting. No questions will be answered. Either you leave or I'll call the police and ask you. You can't have a strategy which, which, which keeps people restrained in these circumstances. You've got to let people look after their own interests. And, and but you, you've got to try and try and use it to leverage getting across a message. So you've got to, at the same time, try to explain what's happening to the journalists around, so that it doesn't look just mad, because there's a, there's a, it's easy to make those things look mad, and so we had to try to handle that to make sure that the polarisation occurred in the, in the way which was most advantageous to us. I couldn't, couldn't control and wouldn't have wanted to everything, but there was a lot of initiatives that went on all over the place by people that I heard about. And thought, oh yeah, well that's good, or oops, so that one didn't backfire, or <laughs> whatever yeah, was yeah. happening. We didn't pull them up on everything they did, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> And, I mean, there are a lot of people who just wanted to be out all the time and marching around. And uh, and there were arguments about tactics all the way through, basically. Mm. And that's fine. That was good. It worked. And I was just saying, just be careful. You know, I just didn't want, A, didn't want anyone hurt, but B, didn't want us to be seen as the ones that triggered all violence. And the people like me who would try to steer things a little bit didn't have much luck with that and so on. People were going to want to fight against everything nasty. And you couldn't, you couldn't sort of send out a memo, we are not going to engage with such and such, because someone was bound to engage with it. So we would have to make sure it was, everything was engaged with well, because better to have a good answer than a, a bad answer, you know. 
The decisions about which events to try and disrupt and which to avoid and how provocatively to act is a common dilemma for broad-based social movement campaigns, with concepts like the radical flank effect suggesting that sometimes it can be advantageous to have a militant and more provocative wing of a campaign that allows more moderate organisations to extract bigger concessions from the decision maker. Think of situations like a grassroots enviro group taking direct action against a multinational that helps to force them into a negotiation with an environmental NGO or the government. It doesn't always work, of course, and trying to manage competing appetites for action was a challenge in this campaign. And for Bill, as the spokesperson for the Gay Task Force and one of the main faces that the public would see. I must confess that I tried to be quite respectable through, personally, through the whole period. I, I would usually wear a tie when I was traveling on, on airplanes and things. You know, if I was, if I was likely to be seen, because I, I was a, a face to associate with the campaign, I had to be a bit careful. And I, I didn't say, right, we're, we're, we're wanting to destroy the, the nuclear family. I, I, and indeed, I would say things like, I, I don't think the nuclear family is that weak. Because really, the truth is that the, the conservative role of the family is not going to be diminished by making queers a bit more respectable. Uh, I personally rather thought that we should avoid many of the um, public meetings and uh, other events organised by the uh, opponents to homosexual law, law reform, but it wasn't going to happen. I was scared that our people would act in ways which didn't, weren't good for the reputation of, uh, of our side. And they certainly did barrack and harass and things like that. It was entirely understandable in all the circumstances, of course, but that wasn't necessarily going to be good media. A and you had to make the most of it. It was something which the visceral needs of our people to fight for their interests, to reject this really nasty filth that was being thrown at us and to do so in a public way, it had to be joined. I mean, they were the ones being threatened, frankly. So that was defensive if it was. But we had some pretty rowdy debates, you know, both sides on a platform where I was on a platform and where people would be yelling at you, but I can give as good as I get in that area. Uh, Fran Wilde. Mr Chairman, the speech we've just heard and the claims that have just been made by the member for Hauraki are a complete perversion and I think a disgusting perversion, not only of the intent of the... Actually stated in the bill, and the member for Hauraki knows that. And night after night in this house, for the last year, he has come in every Wednesday night. He and his his friends, and they have used that sort of emotional diatribe, that sort of emotional claptrap, to frighten members of this house into voting against the bill. And night after night, they have raised the issue of incest and paedophilia, and they haven't bothered to look at the truth to look at the, what the bill really does, that I think is plain disgusting. I, I do remember 
one rally very early on, the one in the hut at the Knox Church uh, meeting called by the, the, the fundies. We went along with a policy of that we would either laugh or sing. And we, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't let them upset us in any way. And Di Cleary and somebody else from Wonak dressed up as nuns. And because we were told if you, if you got out of your seat, you, um, you were going to be arrested. And Di Cleary and this other woman, all dressed up as nuns, went walking down the aisle. Oh, the police didn't know what to do. <laughs> and we're all cheering and waving. <laughs> so, and I had a sign that, that I kept on holding up, holding up to say, cheer. So that, so that every time I held up my sign, everyone went, hooray! <laughs> but there was a doctor, Dr Delaney. He actually gave up halfway through his speech because there was so much noise, because he was saying we were all the product of mothers that had had measles during pregnancy. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, spontaneously people were heckling and trying to stop this terrible filth that the people like um, Braybrook and Norman Jones were trying to say and get back, back into, into the, the sewers. sewers. And, You're back into the uh, sewers. Like Where this. you come from? They're looking at the homosexuals. Don't look and, too long. And, and people were heckling and it, it, it looked like it was going to be a, a terrible mess until Norman Jones said, look, we've paid for this, this room. You can't talk here. You should shut up. If you want to talk, you've got to pay us $150. And I just said, yes, and threw my hands in the air and said, we, we, we accept this deal. I move that this meeting support the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. And thereby kind of stopped the, the messiness of it. Uh, and uh, got a quite nice little public relations kudos out of it. And that might have looked like some carefully executed political ploy that is pre-thought out and so on, but it it happened, it, it just happened. But New Zealand was at a stage that was ready for some of these things. The reception of our tactics even was conditioned by things like the 1981 demonstrations against the Springbok tour, where there'd been some street radicalism and things like that, which people had seen and seen that it, it happens around issues which we agree are important and that people who make a fuss aren't necessarily bad people. The Vietnam War had been a big issue and women's issues and the renaissance of Māori, the young Māori were very active. So there were all of these issues bubbling away at the time in New Zealand and yeah, it was a very active time and people were kind of used to demos. The other thing that occurred during the campaign, of course, the AIDS epidemic arrived, and both sides used that as a reason for supporting their case. You're not going to be able to talk about your behaviours sexually that are causes or ways in which the HIV is spread 
if it's illegal to be gay. And it was taken up as such by the AIDS Foundation because the AIDS Foundation needed to stop anti-gay stigma. And the only way you're going to stop anti-gay stigma is by participating in a campaign such as this. So the other side, of course, said, well, if you legalise homosexuality, half the population will end up with AIDS. And that, that was basically their argument. Mm. And, and we had to argue that one quite fiercely because mm. people were terrified of AIDS. But it was also a, an issue practically in that a lot of our friends were ill and dying. You know, I, I made a list of the people I, I know who, who died in the 80s and 90s, and there are over, over 50 people that I know who died. And so that kind of social reality was something that, that, that absorbed a huge amount of energy. I, I think a lot of us were pretty traumatized by that. As the campaign progresses, you need some way to try and figure out whether or not what you're doing is working. And Fran and Ruth from the parliamentary team were obviously keeping a list of confirmed MPs, though many were consistently wavering, while the existence of supportive groups like HUG, Heterosexuals Unafraid of Gays, which was formed in mid-85, and declarations of support from some trade unions and the Methodist Church, did tell them that they were doing something well. The guys in Auckland had a bit more money than us, and they got opinion polls done. And they were always very encouraging. Our support was increasing uh, all the time. The first poll in April 1985 showed 51% in favour and 42% opposed, while the second in July had an increase in support of 4%. And a third poll in September put support at 62.3%. And that was clearly going to be the key, ultimately, politicians can count and if they can see the numbers going in the right way they'll they'll end up following of course it helped other new zealanders think oh well if more people are agreeing with it i mean you know the herd i got the herd we're quite happy with that for evan away from the main centers of action he kept up to date with the campaign via access radio Hi, welcome to Gay Morning New Zealand for Saturday the 28th of June, 1986. Gay BC on Access Radio was very good. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Gay BC is just a great, great name. <laughs> <laughs> what was Gay BC? It was, it was a gay program on Access Radio every week. And they were oh, great. Right. They used to listen religiously every Saturday. Well, and they would play clips of what's happening in Parliament. Yeah, or... oh, certainly. We did lots of stuff on those two radio programs. And as well, there was Pink Triangle was keeping everybody up to date. There were a variety of things which made us feel that we might well be on track, not least of which was the increasingly alien feeling of the, of the opposition to the bill. The anti-reform petition came to a dramatic crescendo when it was presented at Parliament on the 24th of September, 1985. Claiming nearly a million signatures, it was supposed to be the high point of their campaign and a powerful show of support against the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. 
coming just three weeks before its second reading in Parliament. I think they made a major mistake in their tactics. So they organised a rally at Parliament and they had sorted the petition into boxes with the electorate name on. And they had the members of the Girls and Boys Brigade, now defunct, in uniform, carrying each box up. And they had hymns and they had the national anthem and flags. And they had the MPs who were supporting it on the steps receiving these petition boxes. The petition arrived in 91 boxes, representing all but the four Maori electorates. It was presented to the MPs who organised it for tabling in Parliament. It urges Parliament not to go ahead with the bill which decriminalises homosexuality, because the petitioners say it's against God and country. If the members of this Parliament do not vote, vote to legalise sodomy in this country, then you know what to do to those members of Parliament next election. Because it was presented like some piece of political theatre out of 1930s Germany, we called it the, the Nuremberg Rally. A, and, you know, flags and, and boxes and military sort of thing. At one level, it was scary, it, it seemed, but it seemed so alien to New Zealand political culture. Jewish people said, I, ha, we've seen this before in Germany, and look what happened there. A lot of their propaganda and their rhetoric was taken straight from the United States, which is inspired by fundamentalist religion, uh, a very rigid kind of thinking, uh, and a great deal of fear of diversity, which, I mean, New Zealanders, on the whole, left to themselves, I think, are often for a, a fair go for everyone. Sometimes a misplaced idea, let's face it. But, you know, New Zealanders thought of themselves as being, you know, egalitarian mm. and tolerant. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. I was, um, there's a little low wall and it's in front of the lawn in front of Parliament and on the other side is the forecourt and the steps. And I was standing up there <laughs> trying to be heard with saying, don't let them steal our national anthem. They were singing God Defend New Zealand. And I'd say to the crowd, can we get to sing God Defend New Zealand? We, we own that. That's ours. Sing the New Zealand national anthem, because that is my song and your song. It doesn't belong to them. Can you sing it? Start in the front. Hoot and thank So uh, <laughs> I think I lost my voice that day. Um, it was pretty bad. So five of us, we climbed over the fence and started walking up. the. And I was in the middle and we were walking up where we're not supposed to walk. And they were all, oh, I have to add that I was dressed up as, I had a character called Cynthia Bagwash and I, um, that I used to go to these rallies and, and protests and things. As, and I'm walking along and I've, I've got a hat and and. and, and tie and everything and, and bag that look I looked I don't know I, I mean I looked ridiculous but but 
anyway, the police arrested the two on that side and the two on that side and left me walking around, free to walk wherever. And in the end, I didn't like it over there because I was with all the aunties. So I climbed back over the fence. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing was extreme after that. It was awful. Extreme fundamentalism. And they were hate-filled and really, it was awful. that it was clear that they were going to lose a lot of points for that. So I was pretty hopeful, and a lot of us were pretty hopeful as a result of that. New Zealanders generally said, do we want this kind of jingoism and the use of our national symbols for this kind of issue? Hmm. And the answer was a huge no. Norman Jones, Mr. Speaker, this petition presented of 817,000 signatures to this parliament is the largest ever petition presented to parliament of this country and far exceeds the Save Manapuri petition of 260,000 signatures, which I was responsible in starting. Mr. Peters. Speaker. Now, sir, the petition speaks for itself. 817,000 plus people. It doesn't matter about their ages, their addresses, or who or what they are. Mr. Speaker, the collection of signatures for and the presentation of this petition have been controversial. This house had 91 boxes in it. They were covered in slogans. What we weren't told was that more that none was more than 50% full and many were under 25% full. The overstatement involved in the presentation of the boxes and the overstatement of numbers to which I will refer later do no credit to the petitioner. I had letters from people saying I was forced to sign the petition at work. So we were quite easily able to check them against the electoral roll later on. We had a group of MPs and others who came in and just went through all the petitions and I didn't realise how many of them were Mm. wrong. They were either not on the electoral roll, which probably meant people had given a false name or address, and uh, so many of them were discredited Mm. that in the end it lost its any validity it may have had. And and we had a bit of fun too, you know, it wasn't, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, wasn't all just ghastly. And I'll tell you, some of those marches were incredible. They, they were just stunning. I had been doing Massey papers and one of our lecturers was, was blind and I was just blown away that when I saw Peter and his guide dog and two of the other sociology lectures from Massey and Palmerston North marching in the march. It, it just blew your mind. To, mm. I had done my psychiatric training. I was worried about self-esteem. And so we decided we had to do things that were going to cheer ourselves up. Yes, Jesus was gay. Yes, Jesus was gay. Jesus was 
So at the same time as the as the antis were enjoying were organising their rallies against the bill, we were organising visibility rallies to cheer ourselves up. We had the Bigot Busters Conference and the Bigot Busters Rally. proceeded through Parliament, there was still a strategy required to smooth its course, one which contained a few parliamentary shenanigans. The hardest part was the committee stages of the bill, and every Wednesday night it came up. So every Wednesday night I had to be in Parliament. We had to have the numbers there every Wednesday in case there was a vote. Somebody would say, well, I move that the question be put, and then if we didn't have the numbers and we lost it, it would disappear. That's so random. Yeah, it was random, but that's how it worked. So both sides used delaying tactics. If we knew we had a problem, we would just keep on talking and talking and talking. And the other side sometimes did try to do the same thing as well. So firstly, we engineered a lot of invitations for MPs who were opposing the bill to be out speaking on Wednesdays particularly at the other end of the country, where they couldn't get back to Wellington in a hurry. We wanted their numbers to be down. And, and so we would arrange for them not to be there during the Wednesday debates. During this process, there were two key parts of the bill that needed to be safeguarded, but that risked getting thrown out. One of which they won, and the other, unfortunately, they didn't. Well, the age of consent came up fairly quickly after the bill was introduced, and became a key issue. Mm. The gay community were just absolutely against having any uh, differential. We said 16, 16 or nothing, and we will oppose the bill if if the age of consent goes any higher than 16. We, We said that very, very clearly and hard. We will not compromise on this. And we knew from what had happened in England that they'd had an age of 21, and it took them decades to get rid of that age of 21 and that's a real betrayal to young gay men coming out and so we were absolutely adamant that it was going to be 16. And I said to them seriously we are in danger of losing the whole lot 
Why did you not overrule them, I suppose? Ah, I couldn't. I had to go with what they wanted. I mean, it mm. was not... It was impacting on them, not me. But if you were thinking, it's 18 or it's gone? Well, at one stage, the numbers looked like that. But I just had to go with them. It was the right thing to do. Okay. I mean, how can you say, you know, <coughs> a girl and a boy can have sex at 16, but two boys can't? Mm. What's the difference? It was fundamentally the right thing to do, and so we did it. So the opposition to it in Parliament, they believed it would never get passed if the age of consent was 16. So in the committee stages, when we came to the clause with the age of consent in it, they voted for 16, which was exactly what we wanted because it left the bill intact. Mm. They made a huge mistake then. That was probably the biggest error actually. Mm. And I think by then it had become very clear that uh, that this bill had to go through, that if it lost it would be very divisive in society and it would have flow-on impact for mm. a whole lot of other issues as well mm. and it just had to go through because a lot of gay men had also come out and it was just uh, at, at the stage where there was no question it had to be passed. So those who were saying, oh, well, maybe it should be 18, we just said, look, you have to vote for it because if it gets lost, you know what the repercussions are. The second was the human rights part of the bill, which would outlaw discrimination against people for their sexuality. It would, in theory, stop situations like queer people being overlooked for jobs or stopped from using hotel rooms, the kind of day-to-day -day discrimination that, as Bill said near the start, affected lesbians more than closeted gay men, who had some advantages in a patriarchal society. And so it was a central motivation for many women taking part in the campaign. We didn't make compromises. The compromises happened. There was a compromise built into the whole strategy by having the bill in two parts, a human rights part and a a criminal law part that that gave the soft support to the bill a place to compromise we didn't say we accept this at any point it just happened so it was up to other people to decide what they would pass it wasn't up to us and i wasn't going to say well, we're not going to do that if we can't get through the human rights part, that would have meant withdrawing the whole bill. Yeah. She didn't drop it. Fran never dropped it. She voted for part two, but it didn't get enough votes. And she always said it's a terrible thing that it lo it's lost, which it was. But the point, of course, is that our having fought for it meant that it was passed a very small number of years later. What happened was a number of MPs said to me, Look, I know that the decriminalisation has to go through. That's really important. But uh, people are worried about the human rights side. They'll, they'll, people are saying, this is what the MP said to me, mm. people are saying that this will force them to um, employ gay people and have, well, they were anyway, but they didn't know it, <laughs> yeah. um, and have accommodation if they're an accommodation provider, yada, yada, yada. So... What happened was we lost that part, and I think it was simply an insurance mechanism taken out by MPs who were worried about their electorates, who said to their electorate, look, 
I voted for, or I am voting for decriminalisation, but I'm with you, I'm not voting for the human rights side. We now come to the, we now come to the main question, which is that part two, as amended, stand part. The question is that the motion be agreed to. The ayes are 31, the noes are 49. Part one, uh, part two will not stand part. However, I think the guts of the bill to me was the human rights uh, aspect and that's certainly what affects lesbians. I'm furious that that hasn't gone through. Well, I think we've been conned yet again and we, d we have ended up with nothing as far as lesbians go as a community and that throughout this, all this homosexual law reform uh, campaign there's been a lot of lesbian energy that's gone into it, but for what? I think the effect of lesbian energy going into this whole campaign it seems to me it's been yet another misuse of lesbian women's power in that we are still in the same position as lesbian women and really, we've just been supporting, yet again, male rights and male needs, and I feel angry about that. I read somewhere, or somebody um, that said that these human rights part two was more important than decriminalisation. That is absolutely incorrect. And we always knew that it was very likely that we would use, lose part two. We were quite prepared for that. But the, the decriminalisation, there was nothing that could have been more important than that, I mean, it was it, it, it was a it was a, sh a shocking thing. I mean, one guy went to and lobbied Margaret Shields. He was a doctor, and she told me he he was and she he said she said they both ended up in tears. He was saying one time he was in the domain in Auckland, and all of a sudden there were police dogs on him. He was running away from these police dogs, and 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 he said he felt. She said he felt terrible because he burst into tears in the middle of telling her, her the story, and she and she said it was so awful. I burst into tears too. It's 16 months since Wellington Central MP Fran Wilde introduced the Homosexual Law Reform Bill and it's been a passionate, lengthy debate. The original bill set out not only to legalise sodomy but also to remove discrimination against homosexuals. That part of the bill, however, was defeated along the way. I, I thought that we probably would have it. But you just never know on something like that because people were lobbying right up to the last minute. So there's a public gallery mm. and it was full, the lobby was full of support, mainly supporters of the bill. To have Trevor Mohart put his thumb up in the air as he came out of the, because he was one of the tallies for the eyes, that was, that was the, the thing we were looking for. The question is that the Homosexual Law Reform Bill be now read a third time. The ayes are 49, the noes are 44. It will be read a third time. And they just went crazy when it was passed. It was amazing. They were all over Parliament and outside and everywhere. <laughs>
But when the bill was actually passed, I was in bed with a most ghastly flu. <laughs> but everybody else was there having a wonderful time and celebration. And the, oh, the funniest thing was that the next morning, I, I was feeling a bit better the next morning, but anyway, I rushed into the Lambda Centre, and so I rushed in there and Tommy was there. And he was in there on his own, and somebody, I'll never forget, somebody rang up and said, well, well where is everybody? And, you know, I wanted to speak to somebody. Well, somebody from the media. And Tommy said, well, I think they were all probably in bed. <laughs> First morning that, that it was legal. <laughs> and with us in the studio now is a spokesman for the Gay Task Force, Bill Logan. Good morning. Good morning. How does it feel to be legal? Well, it hasn't really sunk in yet. I suppose it feels like a moderate step has been made towards a more civilised sort of country. Looking at the margin of only five votes and the bitter struggle over the last 16 months, has New Zealand been enlightened or grudging towards homosexuals? This debate has started to change attitudes. It has started to make life better for gays, not only in law, but in attitudes. And attitudes is what's important. It was a very good feeling, uh, uh, particularly if you've got politics like mine, you don't have very many victories uh, in life. And this, this felt like, this felt sweet. But, um, uh, what can I say? We did what we could and it worked. And you thought, yeah, well, that's made the last couple of years worthwhile. It was a long slog, and hmm, glad I did that. As Bill mentioned, the human rights element, which was crucial for reducing discrimination in workplaces and in welfare and general day-to-day -day equality, actually passed several years later. I hoped that there would be continuing activism, and there wasn't particularly. Uh, several times I or other people would try to get something like a revival of the gay task force, and no one was interested. People felt exhausted, they felt they'd done what they had, and they didn't see that that kind of uh, action was uh, terribly necessary to the situation. But I was never un under any illusions that in and of itself this would be a, a movement towards socialism. Much as I would like to see it that, it, it certainly removes one of the obstacles a little bit. I certainly emphasise particularly that any reform is a fragile thing and can be reversed fairly easily. I worked a bit with the Prostitutes Collective and they were interested in our experience. So I think the normalisation process did take some time and the Human Rights Amendment later on was part of that too, mm. to say, yes, you have the same human rights as anyone else. That was critical. Mm. So, but it, it, it's taken years of just kind of socialisation really to get that far. And of course, since subsequently, there have been other issues come up. And in those days, for example, 
the situation of trans people was barely talked about. And I think that's something that really needs attention now. I don't think that I was sufficiently aware of how the the beneficiaries of homosexual law reform would be a a kind of upwardly mobile gay male mostly done very well out of the legal changes and the change in climate uh, and there's a a lot of marginalized kids who are still marginalized kids who then become uh, not so much kids anymore, but still aren't very integrated in society. Uh, and a lot of the people who, who did best out of homosexual law reform are pretty blind to the needs of, of some of the people who are most oppressed. I guess that... I guess it's very difficult to resist having fights over secondary things but it's important to resist having fights over secondary things so perhaps your most important job in politics is to decide what you want to get uh, and be and try to get that reasonably precise uh, and we we were given a discipline by having to to ask a member of parliament for something specific. We had to be clear what that specific thing was. And that was helpful to us because it meant that we had to had to concentrate our minds on that. And in fact, there were two things: human rights and decriminalization of gay men but by being specific about that and then scrupulous to try to keep together everyone who would was likely to support those things and not allow anything secondary to get in the way of that of that that unity I think that's the, the biggest thing I'd take out of it all. I do know that politicians actually are influenced by their constituents, that's for sure. <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. So just lobbying a politician isn't enough. You need mm. to actually make sure that their constituency, whatever it is, and it might not be their electorate, it might be another constituency mm. they have, actually is on side mm. and can help with that. At the beginning of that campaign, I did not perceive myself as an activist. At the end, I did. Mm. It, it was a, a life-changing experience for me. You know, Socialist Action said, would I like to join them? The Communists said, would I like to join them? I was rather neat. They came and visited me. <laughs> I said, no, I'm a feminist. <laughs> Around about 84, I had a very bad back injury, you know, you know the slip disc thing but I had to have a term off teaching. And I attribute that to 40 years of self-oppression and my back just fell apart. And I couldn't wear belted trousers because they put me in a plaster body cast. And so I took to wearing overalls and I thought, well, I'm not going to wear 
khaki overalls to school. That's a bit boring. So I bought some white ones and I tie-dyed them with pink. <laughs> Personally, I, I didn't have much of a job for a while uh, and then worked as a funeral celebrant. I'd done a lot of funerals for gay men and that spread out to being funerals of, of uh, little old grandmothers in Miramar. And I found that very fulfilling and then trained as a counsellor. It was less exhausting than doing five funerals a week. I think I was respected as a teacher. I left teaching at 50 years. I had a couple of years doing nothing. After I was 50, I could draw on my superannuation. Mm -hmm. So I sold the house that I had and bought a smaller house and was able to become mortgage-free and spent the time renovating the house and sorting the garden. I'm still here. Mm. And it has a big garden sure. around it. And then after a couple of years, after the roses got a bit boring, <laughs> I did apply for a job. And part of getting that job was because I was a gay man. So that made a big difference to my life. Mm. And, and it was a part-time temporary job with the Human Rights Commission. And that was really, really brilliant. And then I picked up a job here with public health, again, because mm -hmm. of my gayness. It was a very interesting job too, working with people who had experienced serious mental illness. Yeah. Mm. I asked Evan if he had any advice for campaigners out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, build build a circle of good friends around you first, and then go for it. Yeah. Um, you can't do it by yourself, I don't think. That's it for this episode of Blueprints. If you enjoyed the episode, please send it to someone you think might like it. We're trying to contribute to a culture of reflective political organising so that more people who listen, the more widespread our reflections can get. I've linked to some really excellent archive material in the show notes from places like Pride NZ and the Lesbian and Gay Archives. There's heaps of fascinating stories in there from the past half century of queer campaigning. Next time, how Unite the Union ended zero-hours contracts in Aotearoa, New Zealand, years ahead of Europe and North America. <laughs>